Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. Honestly, I feel really goofy confessing this to you, but um, I love preaching God's Word. I love studying and speaking and preaching from God's Word, but typically, right before I get up to speak, uh, I'm at one extreme or the other. Either I feel just utterly ill-prepared to stand up here, and I'm terrified to open God's Word and expound it, and I feel inadequate, and I feel like if these people just knew 24 hours of my life and where my heart has been and where my mind has been, I would be anywhere but in front of these people expounding God's Word. And then the next Sunday I can get up and I can feel so well prepared. I've done my homework. I feel confident. I am ready to knock this thing out of the park. And my heart just goes from one extreme to the other. And I almost think that, that as a hearer of God's Word, we do the same thing. Sometimes we hear a sermon and we just feel undone. And we just feel like we cannot be mended. That our hearts have been exposed and there's nothing left for us. And sometimes we hear God's word the next week and we think, you know what, I got this. I mean, he's, he's speaking to the guy next to me because I have nailed this thing. All of us, I mean, our, our hearts are just deceptively wicked above all things. Who can understand it? And so that's why when I get up to preach this morning, I just want to run to Jesus and I want to lay all this before him and ask him, is there any way that your spirit can just put us in the center of this thing? to keep us from overconfidence, to keep us from despair, to to preach and to hear your word. Let's do that right now. Jesus, I confess this is one of those terrified weeks where I get up and I just feel utterly inadequate to preach your word. Lord, uh, we feel that when we hear your word as well. And so I pray now that you would protect us from overconfidence in ourselves, that you would protect us from underconfidence in you and your spirit, that you would draw us to the center that we would hear with open hands and open hearts and open minds and dig into your word and let your spirit refresh us and renew us with what you have for us in John chapter 4. And we ask this in the powerful and the reigning name of Jesus. Amen. Let me read uh, the first six verses of John chapter 4 for us. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he began to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, When it comes to preaching and preaching God's Word, um, being a preacher myself, there's a number of things that preachers do that really annoy me and bother me, and I'm sure the same is for you. One of those things that's completely unrelated to what we're going to talk about is when preachers try to coin themselves. Like, they come up with a term and they say, well, this is what I like to call the already and the not yet. Because first of all, we've all heard that before, and second of all, what do you want, us to quote you when we go around, this is what David likes to call such and such? Well, the other thing I can't stand that a preacher does is if you are preaching from God's Word and you use a couple of verses as a springboard to talk about what you want to talk about, and it has nothing to do with the passage, um, because you've just wasted two minutes reading God's Word when you could have spent that hearing yourself pontificate on all the wonderful things you were going to share with us. Well, today when we open up John 4, we're going to do something special. We're going to use this as a springboard to talk about what we want to talk about this morning. Um, But it's going to make sense. There's a good reason why we are looking at John 4 and why we're going to do this, why we're going to see this happen. 
Because sometimes when we get our nose so close to the text, when we're, when we're studying the life of Jesus so closely, we miss the forest for the trees. We don't see the big picture of what his vision is, what his passion is, what his ministry is. If we want to know Jesus, if we want to emulate Jesus, if we want to build CPC on the cornerstone of Jesus, we better work hard to understand how Jesus thought, how Jesus prayed, how Jesus planned the mission that he's engaged with. You can't know Jesus without knowing that he is a man on a mission, that he is here to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to give his life to bring about the good news of the kingdom. You can't know Jesus and separate it from the fact that he is on mission. But, but how does he do this? How does he go preaching the gospel? Does he have a strategy or a plan? Does he have a focus? How, how does he operate in his mission? And I think there's a danger in reading the gospels. We can get an impression about Jesus that's hard to undo, and the impression is this, that Jesus just kind of flows from one spiritual conversation to another. So we saw him at the wedding of Cana, and he had this great spiritual conversation, and then he appears with Nicodemus, and then he's with Pharisees, and now he's with a Samaritan woman, and he just kind of enters one conversation to another. We just kind of see him doing this. And movies about Jesus don't help us because they place Jesus against this nondescript Middle Eastern background, and he's just kind of talking to people. He's having one conversation here, one conversation in another place, and so we don't get a sense of his movement. This could not be further from the truth about Jesus' ministry and about what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't drift into conversations. He plots and he plans. He sets out a map. He strategizes where he's going, how he's getting there, and who he is going to speak to. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had to raise support. He had three very influential financial supporters, so Jesus was engaged in raising support. We know from the Gospels that Judas was his treasurer, so he took care in how money was collected and how that money was spent. We know that he sends envoys ahead of him to get a place ready and to get food ready. The reason that Jesus is alone in John chapter 4 is he sent his disciples into the city to get their meal ready. He was thinking ahead about what they're going to eat. We know from the Gospels that Jesus had a home base, Capernaum. That's, that's Peter's hometown. That's his house where he could kind of launch out from. You know, we want to kind of spiritualize Jesus' ministry and make him just this guru who gets in these conversations with people, but the picture of the Gospels, the picture that the Gospels give us is, is that Jesus is more type A than we would like to think. That Jesus' ministry is the stuff of the equivalent of thank you notes, of balanced ministry budgets, of, of reimbursement forms, of thinking about a home base of operations and planning his mission from out of there. Jesus is thinking hard about what he's doing and where he's going and how he's going to support it. Okay, so if that's true, what's Jesus' plan? What happens when we step back and we look at Jesus' footprints. Where does he go and what does he do? What's most important to him as he thinks about his ministry? Well, I would submit that Jesus' plan, Jesus' strategy, is to blanket this region with the good news of the gospel in three ways. He has a 3S strategy. He saturates, he sparks, and he sends. That's the three ways that Jesus engages with the place. He saturates, he sparks, and he sends. So let's look at each of those. First of all, he saturates a place. 
Now we get the playing field in verses 3 through 5. It says that he left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So we've gotten the three areas of Israel. This, this makes up Israel. So you have Judea in the south. That's where the capital is. That's where Jerusalem is. You have Samaria, where he is now in John chapter 4. That's right smack dab in the middle. That is a people of, of mixed race. That's a people of mixed religion that he is passing through. And then north, you have Galilee, and that's where Nazareth is. So that's where Jesus grew up. That's where he drew his disciples from. Now, if you think about those three regions, Judea, where Jerusalem is and where Bethlehem is, and, and, and Gal- Galilee up top and Samaria in the ma- middle, where does Jesus spend most of his time? Does he divide it evenly between those three? Is he passing back and forth as we find him here? Or does he locate himself in one of those areas? Think about it if you had to guess where he would be. The Gospels tell us, especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us explicitly that Jesus, of all three of those places, spent most of his time in the north, most of his time in Galilee, that Jesus aimed to saturate Galilee with the gospel. That's what he's up to. That's what he's after. That's what he wants to do. That's where he spends his time. And you'll see this all over the synoptics. Here's Matthew 9.35, talking about Galilee. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, he's preached and he's healed in Capernaum. He's having popular response. People love to hear him. Peter's excited about this. This is his hometown. He says, Jesus, there's more people I want to introduce you to. Here's what Jesus says. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I have come out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Well, later in our text, he's in Samaria, and he's having an incredible response. He leads this Samaritan woman to faith. Her city comes out to hear. He spends two days there. They're excited. They're hungry. People are coming to faith. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, look, guys, i got to get back to Galilee. I've kind of staked that out as the place that I am going to saturate with the gospel. And even though we're having great response here, i got to go. i got to get back to Galilee. Well, if you think about Galilee, archaeologists tell us that there are probably about 138 settlements there. That's villages, that's towns, that's cities, and those span in size. So so villages are about 400 people. Towns might be 600 people or more. Cities, there's two big cities in Galilee, and those could be anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people. Here's what's fascinating about Galilee. Galilee is about exactly the same size as Richland County. Isn't that wild? Galilee is 770 square miles. Richland County is 772 square miles. They are about identically the same size. So think about Jesus in this area, in this geographical span with these 138 settlements. There's one scholar who makes the point, Eckhart Schnabel, who says that it is conceivable that if Jesus is out of his operating base in Capernaum, he could get pretty much anywhere in Galilee in a day or two journey. He could walk there. He could get there. So if Jesus and his disciples laid out a map, they could spend two days in every single village. Typically, that's how long Jesus spends in a very fruitful place. They could spend two days in every one of those settlements and and take Sabbaths off, not not travel on the Sabbath, and they could get to all of Galilee within a year. Jesus literally could have preached the gospel in every town and every village in Galilee in a year. But we also know that he sent out 12 disciples. When he sends the 12 out, he sends them out into Galilee. 
So now you've got these six teams of two guys, and they are going to these 138 settlements. And if you allow them two days in each place and taking the Sabbath off, his disciples could have reached every town and village and settlement in Galilee in two months. That's all it would have taken them. So when we think about Jesus' saturating strategy, we're thinking about something that's very real and very practical for him to have been able to do, that he was really able to do this and to reach all of these towns and communities. You know, you're going to find constant scenes in the gospel of disciples getting excited in certain places like Capernaum, like this Samaritan village, and say, Jesus, look, this is amazing. People are responding. They're coming to faith in Christ. They want more teaching. I want to introduce you to somebody else. We could start a VBS here. And Jesus is saying, look, that's not what I came to do. I am here to preach the gospel in every town and every village and every place in Galilee. And he moves on. Jesus is razor sharp in his vision. He is razor sharp in his intentionality. And he will not be sidetracked. Well, there's two other S's in his strategy to spark and to send. We don't have a lot of time to expound on these, but they are very important to Jesus' overall strategy. So Jesus sparks work in different areas. That's exactly what happens in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman is a perfect example. Here she is in Samaria. Jesus is not going to invest a lot of time in Samaria. So what does he do? He passes through. He leads this woman to faith. He, he sends her back to her village to lead other people to faith. He spends two days grounding them and teaching, and then he's gone. And what happens in Samaria? Those people tell somebody, and those people tell somebody, and those people tell, tell somebody. Jesus, it's like a short-term missions trip, not a benign uh, work trip to Mexico, a razor-sharp trip to say, I am leading somebody to faith who can lead other people to faith, and he shows up in Samaria, and he sparks a work there. You know, I think the two of the greatest evangelists in the Gospels are not the disciples. They are, happen on these short-term mission trips. So one of them is this Samaritan woman. He leads this woman to faith, and she starts leading people to faith like crazy because Jesus is not there anymore. The other place this happens is the Decapolis. You have this demon-possessed man who, uh, he comes to faith in Christ, and he becomes a zealous evangelist to go and to preach the gospel in the Decapolis. Those are two places that Jesus is not going to spend time, but he has sparked a work to continue on. Uh, The other thing that he does is, of course, to send people. And this is ultimately, he does this with the 12, he does this with the 72, but ultimately he gives his church the marching orders to say, the Son of God is, is bound, believe it or not, by time and space and can only spend this certain amount of time in this certain amount of space, but I am sending my church out to reach places that have never heard the gospel before. And Jesus will actually make the outrageous statement at the end of John You are better off, disciples and church, without me here, because when I go, you get the Holy Spirit, and you are empowered to carry on this mission. Isn't that incredible for Jesus to say? You're better with me not here to go and do what I've called you to do. So this, this is Jesus' strategy. He, he saturates an area. He spends time in an area. If he's not going to do that, he sparks a work in that area. So he, he launches out and he goes to Samaria or he goes to Decapolis or he goes to one of these places and he starts something there. Or he is content to send people, to train them up and to send them into an area to go where he's not going to go. That's his strategy. Well, we're going to dwell a little bit on saturate this morning. Jesus focused primarily on Galilee. Isn't it just fascinating to see the Son of God set boundaries on what he is capable of doing? 
I mean, isn't that just such a bizarre notion to see him do this as he thinks about this ministry? Sociologists will tell us that in the last 25 or 35 years, we have seen a meteoric rise in the phrase changing the world, right? That's just common currency. We all talk about changing the world. If you're at USC, you're there because you want to change the world. What Christian ministry or secular university does not have in their tagline, we're here to change the world? We talk about this. Thomas Friedman and the internet have told us the world is flat. Any single person has access to all of the world, and we should be agents of change for the world. Right? You hear that. That's common currency. We talk about that. We didn't talk about that 50 years ago. We talk about that today because Friedman spent more time on the golf course in Bangalore than walking the streets and realizing that all of us don't have access to Bangalore. It is not as flat as the world appears to be, but that's, that's a whole other sermon. Um, so we have this kind of currency and this talk about changing the world. Honestly, I want to change the world. I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. I want to think about what we can do to mobilize and expound and multiply beyond what we're doing here. That's a good thing and that's a healthy thing, but sometimes that can give us a grander vision than what God has, has given to us. It was very hard for my wife and I to move from Bangalore, a city of 8 million people in India, where it felt like we were around a moving and a thriving metropolis to Columbia, South Carolina. You know, that, in terms of changing the world, that feels like a step down in the vision because Columbia is not a bastion of cultural or political change in the country or the world. So isn't it amazing to pause and look at Jesus, that God in the flesh carves out this little corner of the globe, Galilee, the exact same size as Richland County, and he gives most of his energy and time and thought and prayer to preach the gospel to everyone he can or to let that person be able to hear from somebody that he's preached to about the good news of what he does. It was worth it to Jesus to think hard about how to reach each place, how to support his ministry financially, how to pray for the kingdom to advance, how to raise up workers, how to say no to some very good things so that he could focus on the best thing, preaching the gospel in Galilee. Can we find a more compelling vision for Columbia Presbyterian Church? Can we take any less care in thinking and planning and strategizing and praying and working and giving to reach our city? Jesus has set this vision before us. He has set this strategy before us. At Columbia Presbyterian Church, we desire to see every man, woman, and child within a five-mile radius of the state house hear and respond to the gospel. That's what we want. That's our heartbeat. That's what we're after. We are the church that's holy and Catholic, as John said, but we are apostolic. We are a church that is sent, that is on mission to reach this city, this corner of the globe. And I want to give us five ways we're going to do this. And so you need to write very fast if you're ready to take this down. Now, some of you have the personality of Jesus and Paul and Barnabas, where you start to hear these things, and that gets your visionary, type A, strategic thinking motor running, and you will begin mapping out, you know what, this is what we can do. Or you know what, as I think about this, this would be a great opportunity. Or you know what, if we tried this or experimented with this, this might work. Man, that is fantastic that that's the way God has wired to you. I want to encourage that in you to say, if you hear something today and that sparks something in you, that is God's spirit moving in you. Come tell us about it and tell us how we can get involved and how you're thinking about these things. 
Some of us are not wired that way. We're going to hear these five things, and we're going to say, okay, I'm fine with any of those. Tell me what to do. That's good, too. I am so glad that God has wired each of us uniquely, and that is fantastic to come and say, you know what? I'm available. Whatever you see me doing, I'll do. Both of these have a place in God's mission, both the strategizing and the vision casting and the doing and the implementing. It is wonderful the unique ways God has wired us to do this. So let me run through these five things. First of all, pray. Pray, absolutely. Making prayer a cornerstone of the outreach of Columbia Presbyterian Church. How do we do this? I promise you, I might have to rescind this promise, but, but as far as I can tell, I promise I do not want to start a pastoral prayer ministry where poor John and I are showing up at 6 a.m. on a Monday morning, just the two of us, because nobody attends church prayer meetings, to do this thing. So tell me, how as a church do we make prayer a cornerstone of our outreach? How do we do it? I need to know. I need to hear. I want to learn. We see Jesus again and again and again. When Peter goes to bother Jesus about coming back to Capernaum, what has he been doing all night? He's set aside time, and he's praying to the Father, and he's asking. He's praying about the mission. He's saying, you know what? I've spent the whole night in prayer, and I need to leave this town and go to the next town. That's what Jesus is doing. How is prayer our cornerstone? Second, we partner. We recognize that there are some fantastic gospel-preaching evangelistic churches in our city And since we're young, we've got a lot to learn from some churches around us. We want to hear from them how to do this well, and we want to partner with them. I want to encourage you guys that as a pastoral staff, John, Jonathan, and I, we meet monthly with fellow pastors in our city. We get around a table together, we pray for each other's ministry, and we plan how do we reach this city well. Man, what a wonderful thing. What a disarming thing. What a, what, what a, what a fantastic way to, to, to break down our ecclesiastical turf and say, you know what, we're in this together. How do we reach our city together? How do we give resources together to do this? So partnering is a big part of this. Number three, we strategize. This is hard work, folks. We look at our city. We look at our five-mile mile radius. We do demographic research. We say, who is here? What do the families look like? What do the jobs look like? What is the income of this area? What, what are the people like? Where do they send their kids to school? What, what schools are here? Where do our life groups meet? Where do our people in Columbia Press, where do they work and who do they rub shoulders with? We do the hard work of strategizing because we want to see where are the ways that we can begin to connect and reach out in our community. Where, where has God equipped us to do that? You know, even now we want to be praying about planting a daughter church. We want to be a church planting church. Uh, Many of you don't know this, but we actually already spoke to a potential church planner to come on staff with us and plant a church out of Columbia Press. That person didn't work out, but how wonderful to have an outreach team that is interviewing a church planner before we ever had a Sunday service. Because we want to plant a pregnant church that we are ready to multiply. And if we're not thinking about this and giving money towards this and praying for this and planning for this, it ain't going to happen. We're not going to wake up five years from now and have a church planted. So how do we strategize about this? Number four, new ministries. We're a small church and we want to do a few things well. It is impossible for us and our church this size to reach every subculture in Columbia. Even those 150,000 within our five-mile radius, we cannot design a ministry for every subculture here. We don't have enough people in this room, even if every single person dedicated themselves to a subculture. So how do we start with a few things well? Well, some things that are beginning to emerge are things like the Ezekiel ministry. 
raising a generation of kids that we love in this city to know and to love Jesus. Daybreak Crisis Pregnancy Center. Finding a way to mentor young men in our city to know and to love Jesus. How do we do this on the college campus? Our college students, you've got to help us with this. And partnering with uh, RUF and Reform University Fellowship. How do we labor hard to reach college students? Something like the Advance, which is a, a retreat to take businessmen, the people that we work with, on an 18-hour retreat to hear the gospel explicitly proclaimed and then to interact with them about it. These are ways that we're reaching a very diverse set of people, but, but we won't do that unless we think about investing in these ministries well. So to strategize about this and for new ministries, number five, finally, to empower and engage. Honestly, every single thing that I've said so far falls flat on its face if you and I do not engage in personal evangelism. Every plan, every prayer, every strategy, every new ministry falls flat on its face if you and I do not learn what it looks like to speak the good news of the gospel to somebody we know, right? Um, we took our marriage retreat to the Hampton Inn in Myrtle Beach, and um, uh, it was a wonderful place, beachfront hotel. It was great. I spent some time in the gym working out there, and the Hampton Inn actually has some very funny rules in their gym about what to do and what not to do. One of the rules is you have to work out with a partner. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Hampton Inn, but that's about the loneliest place in the world. I don't know anybody who goes to the Hampton Inn who has a friend, because when you go to breakfast at the Hampton Inn, everybody's just kind of got their waffle at their own table, and it's all these traveling businessmen. Nobody has friends at the Hampton Inn, so no one could work out there. Well, the last thing it says uh, on this, remember, this is a workout room. The last rule in the workout room is discontinue at the first sign of stress. Isn't that just great? I mean, we know what they're talking about, you know, if, you're, if you've got illness or sickness issues. But imagine if you had that philosophy in your mind when you walked into the room. I'm going to work out, but as soon as I feel stressed, I'm out of here. Uh, you get on the treadmill and you start walking and you're like, oh my goodness, what is this? Is that sweat? I'm out of here. I'm done. You know? Is not that the banner of American culture? discontinue at the first sign of stress. We will find a workout pattern for you. We will find a way to do your devotional reading. We will find a way for you to engage with your family or to take school or to do this that involves the least amount of stress as possible. Don't we do that? Don't we subscribe to that? Don't we think about that? I heard about a a five-minute devotional plan or a workout plan that you can do while you watch TV. It's like those electrodes that just kind of zap your abs. People! This is weird. There is no such thing as a stressless, costless way to work out, and there is no such thing as a stressless and a costless mission. I wish I could tell you that here at Columbia Presbyterian Church, we have discovered a a secret way to do personal evangelism that avoids every ounce of awkwardness. That, that, that gets rid of all razor-sharp intentionality, that keeps us from restless nights of prayer, that avoids jeopardizing the friendships that we have. It doesn't cost any money, and it doesn't cost any time, and it lets us keep abreast of all our primetime network shows, and it lets our, us keep our home as a haven safe from other people coming into it. I wish I could tell you we have developed that plan. Honestly, as an aside, I'll say a lot of our awkwardness in evangelism comes from just being ill-prepared, and there are tools that can equip us to to keep us from self-inflicted awkwardness. But I can't tell you a costless way to do mission because it doesn't exist. There is no such thing as that. 
And we know that because we are watching the Son of God give himself for this mission. And if God in the flesh can't find a way, a costless way to do this, surely you and I cannot. Surely this mission, surely reaching our city will cost us something. Watch Jesus. Watch God himself. He arrives in this town in verse 6. It's in the heat of the day. It's noon. He's hot. He's tired. He sends his disciples to get food. He's excited about this time alone. He didn't need to send all 12 disciples to get dinner. I mean, surely two people could have got dinner. Jesus is just saying, get out of here. Get away. All 12 of you go and find me something to eat. Jesus wants a minute by himself because his disciples just keep asking dumb questions. So he sits down next to a well. It's noon. Nobody comes to a well at noon because it's the hottest time of the day. Why would you draw water at noon? And Jesus takes a deep breath and he relaxes. Probably thanks the Father for this moment of peace and out troops this lonely Samaritan woman. There she comes. And if there is any ounce of humanity in Jesus, he probably said, crap. Crap. Here comes somebody. I've prayed, I've planned, I've sent envoys to get food. We're on our way back to Galilee. I have important things to do in Galilee. I want to reach that region with the gospel. And here's this woman. She's by herself. She's coming. What am I going to do? If we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, if you are following in his footsteps, if this church is following in his footsteps, it will be costly. And it will cause us to reach out across the well, reach out across our street, reach out across our cubicle, and to engage with somebody about the good news of the gospel. There's no such thing as a costless mission. This is what Jesus calls us to. We are the church that is holy. We are the church that is Catholic. But we are the church that is apostolic. We go and we preach the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a vision from yourself as you go and you preach in a way that costs you dearly to be on mission. Lord, I pray and I plead for us as a church that you would cause us to engage, to strategize, to think, to plan, to give sacrificially, to labor, to see your kingdom come, your will be done in Columbia as it is in heaven. Give us this vision, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.